This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell streaming live and podcast shortly after during the week at thisishell.com. The world broadcast premiere of every week's This Is Hell airs Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. on Chicago's Sound Experiment, WNUR. 89.3 FM. You can also hear This is Hell in an abbreviated one-hour version every week on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, twice every week on Lumpen Radio at lumpenradio.com, thrice weekly on the UK-based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at bewaretheradio.com. And we are now airing on CKUW-FM in Manitoba, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, the community radio station of the University of Winnipeg. If you would like to hear This Is Hell on your favorite local public radio station, email us at chuckatthisishell.com or contact your local community station and tell them how much you would like to have the opportunity to listen to our show where you live and all of your neighbors can hear it then too. Just contact your station or just email us, Chuck at thisishell.com, and tell us what your favorite station is, and we'll contact them for you. If you are charged with a crime you did not commit in the United States, and then you are found guilty of that crime, despite the fact that there is overwhelming, very convincing evidence of your innocence, and the allegations of guilt are very, very flimsy, if you are wrongly convicted of a crime that you did not commit, The likelihood you will experience any kind of justice, let alone freedom, is very slim. And if you are a person of color, those chances become far less. A lot of people are being wrongly convicted, more than you would probably think. Consider the fact that of every nine people on death row, one is exonerated. Maybe you were thinking what I've always been told, and that is the wrongly convicted can appeal their guilt and by reviewing the evidence of the trial or introducing new evidence that was not known or inaccessible at the time of the original trial, you can get to the truth. The problem with all of that is appeals are not as much interested in truth as they are in legal procedure. Their concerns are not about the accuracy of their rulings, but their efficiency in getting to a verdict. It's about constitutionality, not crime. It's about procedure not substance, but it doesn't have to be that way. In a few minutes, we'll speak with law and criminal justice scholar Daniel S. Medwood. He is author of Bard, Why the Innocent Can't Get Out of Prison. Daniel is a university distinguished professor of law and criminal justice at Northeastern University School of Law. A renowned innocence advocate, he is also the author of Prosecution Complex, America's Race to Convict and Its Impact on the Innocent. You can follow Daniel on Twitter at Daniel Medwed. That's M-E-D-W-E-D. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Sebastian Vooper. Before we get to how your weekend is, Sebastian, you are doing a past inside the present today. Can you tell us what it is about? Uh, yeah, I'm doing a past inside the present today, and I am talking about immigrants. 
Oh, really? You almost made me spit up my coffee there because it was such a short reply. Yeah. Uh, so uh, did you enjoy yourself at this weekend's uh, 26th anniversary and listener appreciation party that we uh, threw for all of our listeners here at Carrie's Lounge? Oh, yeah, it was great. It was great. It was uh, a lot of fun just seeing all the different, like, people from different corners of the, well, the not the earth, but, like... Of the uh, United States. Of the United States, It yeah. was crazy how many people came out from all over the place. Yeah, from, like, all, uh, from all the, uh, you know... Uh, like literally the corners because like or people from Oregon, Salem, Oregon, yeah. people from uh, uh, like Central California, um, and people from Arkansas and uh, so on and so forth. I'm I'm probably forgetting a lot of people here, and I am sorry if I do. Um, but yeah, it was just the representation was pretty good uh the music was good the food was great um the, just the vibes were uh, to be enjoyed yeah the uh, i thought the music was fantastic and again thanks to everyone who joined us at the party like uh sebastian was saying so we had listeners from all over party with us this weekend heather and ian from seven several hours north in wisconsin up by uh wausau whatever that's a it's a drive uh, garrett from grand rapids michigan he had a drive to get to the train down to Michigan City and then take the uh, Michigan City, or the train in from the light rail and from Michigan City, the electric line. Uh, Neil came in from uh, Brooklyn, New York. Uh, Laddie, uh, one of our regulars, he traveled in from uh, Baltimore, Maryland. Calvin, who drove in from Little Rock, Arkansas. Chris and Michael from Sacramento, California. And CJ and Joey flew in from Salem, Oregon. I want to thank thanks to everybody who joined us. It was an absolute blast, and thanks to all of you who went so far out of your way to join us. We really, truly appreciate it. And the last few days for me have been kind of a blur. First, uh, listeners may have heard me talk about how one of the tenants in the three-flat where I live is a hoarder, immediately following our final show of the week last week, before we had the party on Saturday, we learned that she has sold her place and would immediately move out. So me and my girlfriend, we were literally in tears of joy before we even got to the party this past weekend. Our hoarder, our hoarding experience is over. She's already moving out there, already cleaning up her place. Within a couple of months, hopefully by the new year, it'll be completely gut rehabbed and renovated. So, the question I then have is like, when did she sell the place? Was that before or after the flooding? Oh, uh, after, immediately afterwards. She just sold it to a friend of hers, who a mutual oh, friend. Okay, just sold it to some guy who was like, "Look, I'm sick of having ten kids living in my house. I got eight okay. kids and two foster kids. I got to get these, some of these kids out of here." So he's. Wait, 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 wait. So what you're telling me is you're replacing a hoarder with a bunch of kids? <laughs> with one kid, luckily. Just, it's just okay, 120-something. Yes. Yeah, so right. right. I was, I was I about to say, just careful what you wish for. I know here. it's going to turn into a foster home, which would be <laughs> fine, I guess. I don't know. Better than a hoarder, definitely. So You say that now. <laughs> yes. All that said, Sebastian, please share with us this week's question from hell for our listening audience. Uh, this week's question from hell is... What important personal item did you lose at the This Is Hell annual listener appreciation party this weekend? What important personal item did you lose at the This Is Hell annual listener appreciation party this weekend? Did you lose something at the party? No, no. All I mean, right, not right. at least not that I can.
can tell right now. I mean, who who knows? Maybe I did, but um, uh, towards the end of the evening, I lost my mind. Does that count? Um, yeah, that that would also count. <laughs> um, also, dear listeners, this is a hypothetical question. This is not the official listener appreciation party, lost and found. Uh, please, please just come up with something whimsical, maybe even with just a fart joke. That's fine. Um, I shouldn't encourage this, but anyway, <laughs> no, you uh, should not. Yeah, uh, no. or mom jokes. Yeah. Uh, so the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want, the this is hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer, as well as the this is hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Don't forget, we are completely listener supported, so without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support and if you come over here during our weekly meet and greet which is really a drink and think this is hell office hours which happen every wednesday evening we are now going to have all of that merchandise available here you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio you can direct message it to us via twitter at this is hell radio you can email it to chuck at this is hell.com but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following jeff dorchin and the moment of truth Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Sebastian has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is the perfect pre-game meal to fight a hangover. Uh, I had to make sure that I didn't re- read that wrong, the perfect pre-meal game. To- <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the perfect pre-game meal to fight a hangover. There is a website, apparently, called Ask Men. <laughs> which ran a story with the headline, How to Avoid Hangovers According to Doctors and Dietitians. Uh, is, uh, oh, okay, that's just the headline. Okay. According to Doctors and Dietitians, colon, six foolproof tips that can help you avoid hangovers according to experts. And uh, one of the supposedly foolproof tips is eat a balanced meal before drinking. Uh, Dr. Harold Hong if that's his real name, yeah, I mean, I assume probably. Um, yeah. I'm, anyway, I'm just trying to be dumb here, but <laughs> now I'm accidentally being racist. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. Uh, a board-certified psychiatrist at New Waters Recovery is quoted saying, "Your body absorbs absorbs alcohol more quickly without any food to provide a buffer. As a result, you'll get drunk faster, and the hangover symptoms will worsen." Ask Men writer Rebecca Strong, if that's her real name, there you go, adds, It's a good idea to eat a hearty meal before heading out to have some drinks. Specifically, focus on foods high in zinc and nicotinic acid, which a 2019 study found can reduce the severity of hangover symptoms. Examples of foods rich in these nutrients include shellfish, chicken, peanuts, avocados, mushrooms, and whole grains. And that makes this week's hangover cure, apparently, before drinking, eating a balanced meal of shellfish, chicken, peanuts, avocados, mushrooms, and whole grains. So, like, some interesting uh, fusion food of, like... Oh, Thai food would work because the peanuts and a lot of peanut sauce. Yeah, but like... Avocados, though? I don't know. I don't know if I've ever had that. Yeah, Maybe the peanuts yeah. are just saved for dessert. I guess. And now a word from our sponsors. And as we are completely listener supported, our sponsor 
is you, the listening audience. Listener Brian P. wrote to us following our conversation last week with James Wilt about his new book, Drinking Up the Revolution, How to Smash Big Alcohol and Reclaim Working Class Joy. Brian writes, Hi, Chuck. I was wondering if you could share James Wilt's email address with me and or uh, connect us in a non-social media setting. I listened to your interview with him after attending a faculty senate meeting where our university is eliminating an off day in the spring because of too much partying. I'm trying to use this as a moment to promote harm reduction alternatives to carceral responses to partying, and I got the indication that James had ideas related to this or could direct me to some literature. I would much appreciate it, and thank you very much for the work you do, Brian. So we forwarded Brian's email to James, and here's the two of them working together on alternatives to harm reduction. Thanks to James for sending us an autographed copy of his book, uh, Drinking Up the Revolution, which we raffled off at the anniversary party this past weekend. But I'm going to get back to that one uh, phrase in Brian's email, harm reduction alternatives to carceral responses to partying, which is interesting. Partying is not only harmful to ourselves, but the cops get involved, or are the cops getting involved because they're trying to stop partiers from harming themselves? And if you haven't noticed, I've been thinking about James's book ever since our conversation wrapped up last week's show. Yes, we ended a show of uh, or a week of shows prior to an anniversary party at a bar with a discussion on uh, breaking up big alcohol, alcohol for the common good rather than private profit, and less harmful alternatives to alcohol. And what better way to get our listeners in the mood for a party than to suggest that the show will now be embracing temperance? Coming up, U.S. justice is unforgiving. We'll tell you what happened on last week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Sebastian will have your answers to this, some of your answers to this week's question from hell. Sebastian, who is not only a producer here on This Is Hell, but a historian in real life, will also have his latest installment of the past inside the present when Sebastian reveals the historical context we need to better understand our world today. And we'll tell you who will be on the show later this week. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. Once you are convicted of a crime, rightly or wrongly here in the United States, it's very difficult to ever get exonerated despite being wrongly found guilty. Here to help us understand why it's so difficult in the problem of prioritizing procedure over the truth. Law and criminal justice scholar Daniel S. Medwood is author of Bard, Why the Innocent Can't Get Out of Prison. Welcome to This Is Hell, Daniel. Thanks for having me, Chuck. It feels like this is heaven. Um, Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being on the show. This is just an aspect of uh, the criminal justice system. I'm not a law scholar, but the criminal justice system that I never was aware of before. You write about a Bobby Fennell who had spent 16 years behind bars for a prison or for a murder he didn't commit. Uh, We were scheduled to meet in prison for the first time in the summer of 2001. You write, if I could locate the prison, I'd never been to Otisville, New York. It's one of the many dots on the map of uh, prison towns that stretches from the New York City suburbs all the way to Canada. And I was just thinking about that and how much or how little we recognize the size of the prison complex we have here in the United States. Many prison towns stretching from New York City suburbs all the way up to Canada. How invisible, if you will, are the prison towns to the public? How aware, how much do you think the uh, general public recognizes the size of the prison system that we have? 
I think the public has no clue about that, or very few people have a sense of it for a couple of reasons. First of all, we have upwards of a million people behind bars in this country, and many of them, Chuck, as you indicate, are in far-flung locations. Part of the reason, of course, is that prisons are often set up as a matter of political pork, right? Where legislators in small communities will try to get the contract to build a state prison in order to get jobs in that community. And it also has the advantage of basically keeping people away from um, often the cities where they come from. So that uh, in a sense, uh, not as many people can visit them and there are all these other collateral uh, problems. So I think for a lot of people who live in urban areas in particular, we understand in the abstract that, that there are prisons, but we don't see that concertina wire. We don't see that uh, medieval fortress that, that, that the prisons often look like um, because they're out in remote locations. Do you think economic concerns play any role in the unforgiving nature of our justice system? You were just talking about how these places are, you know, small prison towns are looking for jobs. These are places that are often in the Rust Belt, places that have lost manufacturing due to free trade policies. So uh, do you think uh, economic concerns play a role in the unforgiving nature of our justice system? I, I think they do, and here's why. When you decide to build a prison, you're basically infusing a lot of cash into that community, not just in terms of the infrastructure, infrastructure, but also in terms of the job opportunities for corrections officers, the wardens, social workers, um, people who deliver food and other services to the facility. And you're so you're infusing that that direct amount of money, but you're also thinking about the long-term stream of, of cash that's going to go to that facility, right? You don't just build a prison and, and then think no bodies, no one's going to be there. So there is a an incentive to fill the beds, right? Because otherwise those jobs that you've so carefully cultivated uh, will go away. So I don't think it's a, a direct pressure, Chuck, uh, in the sense that judges and prosecutors are thinking about the need to fill beds in these very remote prisons, um, but it's more indirect. Our entire system is predicated on the idea that there's a pipeline from criminal offense to the carceral state. So when you're talking about this Bobby Fennell, you write how in 2000, Fennell's uh, trial attorney sought assistance from legendary trial attorney Will Hellerstein, and you joined him as a young instructor on a short-term contract at the school. We teamed up from the uh, Second Look, teamed up, uh, yeah, to form the Second Look program, a clinic where we worked with our students to investigate and litigate innocence uh, claims by New York inmates. You mentioned the Innocent Project and how there are about 50 other groups across the United States that can also be classified as innocence projects, regardless of their official titles. Some are affiliated with law schools, others are freestanding nonprofits, and a few are units within public defenders' offices that uh, receive government funds to represent indigent criminal defendants in their jurisdictions. Some focus exclusively on DNA cases, others don't. Nearly all operate on shoestring budgets. Their work contingent on the largesse of donors, law school deans, and the occasional dollop of public support. How dependent is justice in the United States on law schools and nonprofits to fix the problems with wrongful convictions within the system? And what does it say to you about justice in the U.S. when nonprofits and law schools are needed to fix these gaps in justice? What it says to me, I think, is that justice is a myth, that we don't really care about true justice. We care more about the appearance of justice. So, for instance, you have a right to an attorney 
at trial. If you're too poor to pay for an attorney, one will be appointed to you. That's from a famous case, Gideon versus Wainwright from 1963. You also have a right to an attorney for one appeal. It's called the direct appeal, where you explicitly challenge the issues that occurred at trial. But beyond that, it's entirely in the discretion of a judge to appoint a lawyer. And judges often don't appoint lawyers for what are called post-conviction motions. You mentioned the Bobby Finnell case, where we tried to uh, get him out by finding newly discovered evidence. So because it's so hard to get a lawyer appointed to you when you're behind bars, these innocence projects, students in law school clinics, nonprofits, without these entities, we would never be able to expose uh, the scourge of wrongful convictions in this country. And you're right that uh, what I've learned is that my initial ideas about the fairness of the criminal process were wrong. When I was a first-year law student, one of my professors told me, give me procedure over substance any day. I'll win with procedure. And you write how you scoffed at this assertion back then, believing that substance, like truth, justice, merits, would always prevail. Experience has taught me he was right. It's not just that legal procedure is a crucial tool we can use to fight for the innocent. Innocent. It's that the rule regime, regime itself is stacked against the innocent, contrary to the popular belief that the post-conviction process is full of escape hatches from the prison cell, those imaginary technicalities that let people loose. The innocent don't always go free. You can have evidence of innocence and no one willing to hear it. Why is the rule regime in the justice system stacked against the innocent? Well, in many ways, that's the focal point of this book, because it seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? For most of us, we think justice, truth, merits, the substance of a case should matter more than the procedure. If there's evidence that the police committed misconduct, we think the facts of that event should matter much more than the procedure through which you litigate it, right? But the entire system, I think, is set up to exalt procedure over substance, to exalt finality and efficiency over accuracy, partially for economic reasons. We can't have endless appeals. We can't keep cases open forever because uh, otherwise the system would collapse under the weight of its own docket, but also based on this idea, and it goes back to something we talked about a moment ago, Chuck, that it seems like our society values the appearance of justice more than the reality of justice. To get at the truth, to get at an accurate result, that takes time, that takes effort, that takes money. Mistakes are often made at the front end of a process, and it could take years for you to vet through that case and figure out what went wrong. And I think procedures are a way of essentially, you know, putting lipstick on the pig, to use that, that old phrase, to kind of gussy up our process and make it look prettier than it is. These procedures are really designed to preserve the initial trial outcome or plea bargain outcome and make it difficult to get second or third or fourth bites at the apple. So what do you think guides our understanding of our justice system more? A sense of exceptionalism that we really think that our system works incredibly efficiently when it comes to finding the guilty guilty and finding the not guilty not guilty? Or is it a sense of denialism that we know that the system doesn't work, but we're just pretending that it does? Oh, I think that's a fascinating question. I think it's a combination of the two. There's absolutely a dose of American exceptionalism. How many of us have heard that phrase? Our system is not perfect, but it's the best out there. I mean, we've all heard that, right? We hear that all the time. 
And I think that's a specious claim. Uh, you know, what is that based on? Well, how is our system proven to be the best? Um, so the idea is we believe that the adversary system, this pitched, heated combat between a trial defense lawyer and a trial prosecutor in front of a group of 12 fair and impartial citizens in the jury box, that somehow the truth will prevail, or if not the truth, the greatest approximation of the truth. But there's really no um, validation for that. We have no way of discerning whether that's the best process. So American exceptionalism is part of it. The denial piece comes in uh, on the back end, where a lot of people will look at evidence of wrongful convictions. And we've had about 376 documented DNA exonerations since 1989. A lot of them, Chuck, from your home state of Illinois, where post-conviction DNA testing of biological evidence retrieved from the crime scene has proven that the person convicted of the crime didn't do it. A lot of people will look at that data, and some of us will say, that's the tip of the iceberg. There are so many more cases. Others will look at it and say, and this goes into the American exceptionalism piece, hey, the system works. We have all these back-end protections that make sure that we'll detect whether someone innocent has been wrongfully convicted. And look, we only have 376 of them. The problem, of course, is A, these procedural barriers I talk about in the book make it so hard to overturn those convictions. And B, very few cases have biological evidence that you can subject to DNA testing. So I think going back to your question, it's a combination of exceptionalism and and a little bit of uh, a denial, maybe unconscious or implicit bias, uh, but certainly there's an element of denial. So, you know, I, I've had this belief in the past. I mean, I've uh, had uh, people on the show who've ex- explained to me that this is not the case anymore. But why do we believe so many people are found not guilty or their guilty verdict is overturned on these, quote unquote, technicalities? We always hear that word, technicalities. Why is that the imaginary world of justice so many have, a world where technicalities set people free. You know, I think part of it is the media tends to glom onto cases that feel sensationalized, right? And so even in the uh, 19th century, this is a really interesting uh, uh, point, Chuck, that in the um, 18th, really the 19th century, um, media, especially, you know, pulp papers and sort of tabloid journalists, loved to sensationalize cases where people got out on technicalities. Uh, you know, there's a famous case where someone convicted of murder got out because his name was misspelled in the charging document, the indictment. This was a time when the rules were very different. And if you could show any error at trial, even in a ministerial one like that, you could get released. So for a long time, the media would, I think, highlight these cases, relatively rare cases, where technicalities led to release. The problem, of course, is that these cases are few and far between, in part because over time, again, starting in the 19th century, courts and legislatures began to change criminal procedure. So for instance, the idea that you can get out on appeal just by citing a technical error that occurred at trial is a fallacy. There's a doctrine known as the harmless error doctrine, and I cover it in the book. And uh, this doctrine says it's not enough to just prove that an error happened at trial, that your name was misspelled in the indictment, or that the prosecutor said something wrong during closing argument. You have to show that that error somehow affected the outcome. 
that but for the error, you know, you would not have been uh, convicted. And that's a really difficult thing to prove because when you look back on a case from the benefit of hindsight, you might overvalue over the all of the evidence of guilt and assume that the person is guilty. So I think it's this mythology, Chuck, that we have that really is there for historical reasons and it's being perpetuated by the media, which tends, as I said, to sensationalize these relatively rare cases, you know, where guilty people go free. So who benefits from a system of justice which is based on procedure, the goal of which is not to find the truth? You know, I think a lot of the institutional players benefit from it, and that's part of the tragedy. So when you look at the incentives for trial prosecutors and defense lawyers and trial judges and appellate lawyers, their goal is to basically secure favorable outcomes. For trial prosecutors, and this is, I think, a real problem, their conviction rate is often the coin of the realm. If they can get a plea bargain or if they can secure a conviction at trial, quote unquote, that's a proxy uh, for being a good, that's, this is where the quote comes in, a good prosecutor. A defense lawyer who can secure a favorable plea bargain for her client might be considered to be effective. If you can get a three-year sentence for your client when he's facing 10, many uh, defenders will view that as a win. And trial judges and appellate judges have so many cases that they have an incentive, really an implicit incentive, to keep the wheels of justice spinning through plea bargains and sort of summarial, uh, sum summary uh, uh, decisions on appeal to, sort of cursory evaluation of these cases. So I think every player in the system, except, of course, for the criminal defendant, him or herself, benefits from a system that focuses on the trial, focuses on the plea bargain process, and then really doesn't take a deep dive, a critical examination through the appellate and post-conviction uh, arena. So if procedure is necessary, but at the same time it isn't the best way at getting to the truth, is it at least what it claims to be, and that is, is procedure efficient? I think that's another really important consideration. So I think some of these procedures are relatively uh, efficient. So take, for example, um, there are things called statutes of limitations where you have to file your appeal or what's called a notice of appeal, your intent to file an appeal from your conviction, typically within 30 days of your conviction. It forces people to get their act together, to file that notice, begin the appellate process. And a certain number of people might not file that notice, which means they're not gonna be in the system. They're not gonna be on this conveyor belt. So statutes of limitations are fairly efficient. They encourage people to get things rolling sooner rather than later. Also, that procedural rule I mentioned a moment ago, Chuck, the harmless error doctrine is pretty efficient because it allows appellate courts to um, affirm trial convictions even when there has been an error, but when they think that the rest of the evidence is so overwhelming that the error didn't really affect the result. Without the harmless error doctrine, we'd get lots and lots of new trials, and the system probably couldn't absorb the increase. So I think these procedures do advance efficiency. They do advance finality, even though, of course, in the popular imagination, uh, a lot of people think appeals are endless. People have a million opportunities to challenge their cases. I think everything in the procedural re regime is geared toward uh, efficiency and finality. You write that innocent, defendant, innocent defendants have passed through that door and earned justice from time to time over the past 30 years. Since 1989, as you were pointing out earlier, post-conviction 
DNA testing has exonerated 375 innocent prisoners in the United States and more than 2,000 others have overturned their wrongful uh, convictions without the benefit of that scientific tool. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Estimates about how many prisoners are actually innocent span from a low of 0.027% to a high of 15%. Most range from one half of a percent to two percent, with an American prison population exceeding one million. Even some of the conservative estimates translate to thousands of innocent people behind bars. Some date the beginning of uh, policies that have led to mass incarceration as early as 1970. Mass incarceration expanded due to the war on drugs and other contributing factors have been said to be over-policing in redlined and marginalized communities, longer sentencing for uh, minor crimes, endless restrictions after uh, being released, as well as the Crime Bill of 1994. What role, if any, has mass incarceration played in finding innocent people to be guilty of a crime they did not commit and ending up being jailed? Does mass incarceration have an impact on how many or what proportion of innocent people end up serving time for crimes they did not commit? Uh, Absolutely, in the sense that, well, we really don't know about the data, going back to your point. As you mentioned from the book, I talk about how the estimates of the error rate in our system, you know, run the gamut from, you know, 15% to uh, a figure that um, Justice Scalia cited uh, many years ago, 0.0027%. And a lot of the estimates fall within the 1% to 2% range, which does correlate with a large number of innocent people. I think mass incarceration is a huge part of the problem, because as we've rushed to uh, criminalize behavior that once was either deemed um, non-prosecutable, uh, you just wouldn't prosecute it, or um, you've, you've investigated people for crimes at such a rate that more and more people are being charged and convicted in part through the plea bargain system, it just means that there's a glut in the system. There are so many people being incarcerated that mistakes are going to be made. I, I mean, this is sort of a simple concept, right? If, I mean, you're a busy man, Chuck, I'm a busy person. Like, if you have three things you have to do on a particular day, um, you can space them out and probably do them well. If you have 10 things, chances are you'll mess up a few of them. And and the same thing sort of applies to our criminal justice system. The, The fewer cases in the pipeline, the fewer people in the system, the greater the likelihood that the institutional players can look at the case with the equanimity and objectivity that those cases demand. But as our system has grown, as uh, mass incarceration has become the norm, not the exception, I think it's increased the error rate and it's also made it harder for you to figure out on the back end who in fact is innocent and who isn't. We are speaking with law and criminal justice scholar Daniel S. Medwood, author of Bard, Why the Innocent can, Can't Get Out of Prison. Follow Daniel on Twitter at Daniel Medwood. That is M-E-D. W-E-D. You mentioned different ways in which you can possibly become exonerated. You write, the one route that's designed explicitly for innocent claims is to file a post-conviction motion for a new trial based on an ancient English remedy known as a writ of error, uh, which uh, points to new discoveries that cast doubt on the integrity of the verdict. Although these writ of error or quorum nobis procedures are geared to address questions of innocent, they are full of obstacles including narrow definitions of what counts as new evidence. How difficult is it to get a determination that evidence is new? Because, again, this is how it's depicted in movies, that all of a sudden somebody's in jail and we have this new piece of evidence. They base the 
overturning of their conviction based on this new evidence that suddenly appeared. So how difficult is it to get evidence to be determined as new? Uh, it's very difficult, and, and here's why. First, you actually have to find it, which takes investigative resources. And many of these clinics or innocence projects, as you mentioned earlier, are strapped for cash. So for you to find new evidence that proves someone is innocent, sometimes years and years after the crime, uh, you mentioned uh, you know, Bobby Finnell at the beginning here. You know, Bobby was convicted in 1985. My colleague and I got involved in this case around 2000, 2001. So by the time we we're even involved in this case, 15 plus years had passed since the murder. Um, that makes it inherently difficult to find the evidence, even if we had adequate resources. The second barrier is, and this ties into the procedural regime, for you to prove that something is newly discovered through one of these post-conviction motions, you have to show that the evidence could not have been discovered with due diligence, that's the uh, phrase, at the time of trial. So what often happens in these cases is the prosecutors will say, that's not new. The defense attorney at trial could have found it had he or she just done a decent job. So let's say you find a new witness, an eyewitness to a crime. They've come out of the woodwork. You track them down. That person's name was on some uh, report, a police report somewhere. The prosecutor's going to say defense attorney could have found it. It's not newly discovered now. So there, there's both the practicality of finding the new evidence that's difficult and the definition of newly discovered evidence is so confining, so limiting that that provides a second hurdle. So... How often does incompetence by a defense attorney lead to somebody who is innocent to become wrongly convicted and jailed, and then once that incompetence is revealed, they have to stay in jail based on incompetence and not whether they committed that crime or not? It happens quite often, Chuck. So when you look at the data set of documented DNA exonerations and, and these DNA exonerations, which are on the website for the Innocence Project in New York, which has a great is a great source of data, I, I think about 20 percent of those cases involved what the Innocence Project calls ineffective assistance of counsel or ineffective lawyering. So you can sometimes get these cases overturned on the grounds that you'll, you'll argue that your lawyer provided constitutionally deficient represent, representation at trial, that they made a mistake and that mistake affected the outcome. The problem is even if you can prove ineffective assistance of counsel, that's different from proving innocence. So one of the cases that I talk about in this book that's sort of a through line throughout the book, ultimately this person was exonerated on the grounds of ineffective assistance, but he wasn't declared innocent. And so he never was eligible to get compensation from the state. Uh, and to this day, he's never gotten uh, compensation for, for his injury on the grounds of a wrongful conviction. So I think ineffective lawyering by, by defense counsel is a huge factor in these cases. It's often something you can try to litigate. Um, but best case scenario, you might win on the grounds of a constitutional violation, not actual innocence. But without that declaration of innocence, how much can a wrong, wrongful conviction become a life sentence? Yes, I, I think that's a great point. It, it can become a life sentence in the sense that you would stay in prison, but it can also become a life sentence, and I've seen this a lot, uh, in the sense that it becomes a noose around the, your neck. 
sort of a conceptual noose around your neck as you uh, live your life, right? It's a burden, a yoke that you have to bear. Uh, you know, one of my clients, never deemed innocent, got out on the grounds of ineffective assistance of counsel. People are constantly skeptical of his claims of being innocent. You know, he has an eight year gap on his resume because he was wrongfully convicted and imprisoned in New York state, but he doesn't have that document that can prove that he is innocent. And the way he's reported to me, it, it just, it, it feels like people are looking at him sideways. Sure, you're innocent, where's the proof? You also point out that parole boards don't view innocence claims kindly. They want to see expressions of remorse and acceptance of responsibility before releasing a prisoner to live in the outside world under state supervision. If you're politically connected or have a particularly sympathetic case, you might ask the governor for clemency, but pardons and sentence commutations are rare. Many politicians are plagued by images of a freed inmate on a crime spree. Any hope for re-election is then dashed. So, but if the convicted, if the convicted is not guilty, how can one show remorse or acceptance of responsibility for a crime they did not commit? How do parole boards react to the convicted not having remorse or taking responsibility because they insist they're innocent and were wrongfully charged, convicted, and sentenced? Do they? Is it just about just pretend that you have a remorse and responsibility, and that way, and that way, it's kind of an admission of guilt, and then we'll let you go? It, it's so perverse. Here are the incentives. And, and I've labeled this the innocent prisoner's dilemma. Let's say you're innocent and you can't prove your innocence in court, right? And this is my Bobby Finnell case. We couldn't prove his innocence in court. The direct appeal was over. We couldn't find newly discovered evidence. We couldn't do it. So we, in turn, we would try to get him out on parole or maybe clemency from the governor. That's the executive branch, not the judicial branch. What the executive branch does, and here's the dilemma, they basically say that guilt or innocence is a question for the courts. They sort of point the finger back at the courts and they say, we will give mercy in the form of parole or clemency if we think the person has is remorseful, is taking responsibility for his or her actions. But we're not going to relitigate guilt or innocence. We don't want to hear about innocence. So this puts the innocent prisoner in this conundrum, this dilemma. Option A, and you alluded to this, Chuck, is the innocent prisoner can feign remorse and can feign responsibility and, and basically admit, I'm using air quotes, admit guilt. That could maximize the prisoner's chance of getting parole. And by getting parole, at least you get to breathe free air, albeit under government supervision for the duration of your sentence. But in doing that, you are basically jeopardizing any chance you might have to later prove your innocence in court, maybe through some newly discovered evidence that's found later, because now there's an admission of guilt on your record and prosecutors are gonna learn about it and they're gonna say, you're not innocent, you told the parole board you did it. So that's option A, get out on parole, but basically undermine your innocence claim. Or option B, stick to your guns, claim to be innocent, you don't express remorse. You don't take responsibility. I mean, you should express, everyone should express empathy for a crime victim, of course, but let's say you don't own up to your misdeeds. The parole board is probably going to think that you're in denial, that you haven't been a penitent, you haven't repented. You know, note that prisons are called penitentiaries. It's a 19th century sort of religious concept. They want you to show repentance, and you're probably going to get denied parole. 
you might preserve the opportunity to litigate this through the post-conviction process, but as we already discussed, newly discovered evidence is very hard to, hard to find and it's very hard to present to court. So you're sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. This dilemma is really a, a major uh, obstacle. And you say the appellate system is very unforgiving in the United States, unforgiving of a crime, uh, the guilt of which was determined by a trial. So in your opinion, is a trial the best forum for resolving a defendant's guilt or innocence? Is a trial meant to be accurate or is it meant to be efficient? I think it, there's a difference between theory and practice. So in theory, I love the idea of the American trial, which is you have a public forum where you have prosecutors and defense lawyers examining witnesses, cross-examining the other side's witnesses, presenting evidence, all of it done in front of 12 citizens in the jury box and a judge. And it's a transparent process. It's typically open to the public. There's a court stenographer who's recording everything for posterity. So the theory here is great. The problem in practice is we don't actually level the playing field to give the defense a fighting chance. Why? Well, for one thing, most jurisdictions don't require the government to turn over all the evidence in its possession to the defense so the defense can have a good sense of the case against it. In fact, even evidence that would what's called exculpate the accused, that's favorable to the accused and is consequential to guilt. It's called Brady material after a famous uh, Supreme Court case from 1963. Even Brady material only has to be turned over before trial, not before a plea bargain. So a lot of people are pleading guilty without really knowing the evidence against them. In addition, we don't give defense lawyers adequate resources to investigate their cases and to really mount a good defense. Uh, a few moments ago, Chuck, we talked about ineffective assistance of defense counsel and how poor lawyering contributes to a lot of wrongful convictions. We really don't know how many cases are affected by inadequate defense performance. What we do know, though, is that defense lawyers who are public defenders, who are assigned to represent the poor, are overworked and underpaid. And in particular, they lack adequate investigative resources. So just a, you know, a little tale from my crypt, um, before becoming an academic and, and running that Innocence Project at Brooklyn Law School, our second look program, I was a public defender at the Legal Aid Society in New York. And I handled appeals and things like that. In our office, which had you know dozens and dozens of people in the unit, we, if I recall correctly, we had one half-time investigator uh, for all of us. And if I recall, this person couldn't drive, okay? So we had a halftime investigator who couldn't drive. Our adversaries, the prosecutors in the five boroughs of New York City, not only presumably had investigators in their office, um, but if they wanted to get help, I imagine they could just call the NYPD and get assistance from uh, the police with whom they collaborated frequently. Sort of this imbalance in investigative resources, you know, either direct or indirect imbalance, um, makes it very, very hard for justice to occur at trial. And that is a sort of a paradox, given how people tend to think that justice does result from the adversarial system. So you're not against the idea of the trial. You're, the problems that you have when it comes to a trial uh, has to do with resources and fairness and equality when people when standing in front of a judge. Absolutely. I think if we created more of a level playing field, it could be more accurate. Now, I should add, I, I, I am still puzzling over the idea 
of having more of an inquisitorial model as opposed to an adversary model. So in continental Europe and a lot of countries, the trial isn't this fight between the defense lawyer and the prosecutor. In a lot of these other countries, it's more of an open inquiry where the judge has a more active role. The prosecutor is slightly more passive. The prosecutor might present the government's position, but isn't necessarily wedded and doesn't necessarily benefit from securing a conviction. Um, some people think that that, that works better. Uh, you know, I'm not sure. In a country that's as diverse and large as ours, um, I don't know if we can trust you know, the institutional players to do a great job without a defendant having a zealous, dedicated advocate. Um, but I think it's something that I'm still even, you know, 20 plus years into my career mulling over. But yes, I think the trial is where we should vet uh, guilt or innocence. But if we could infuse the process with greater resources, then we'd have a greater uh, a ratio of, of accurate versus inaccurate results. And if we combine that with an infusion of resources in the appellate and post-conviction sphere, and a lot of reforms that I allude to in the book, I think we could be in a much better place. Why do you see these individual events of the justice system failing and in finding innocent people guilty of crimes they did not commit why do you see this as a, quote, national disgrace? Aren't these just, you know, as we always hear, it's just a few bad apples, the results of mistakes, human errors in specific cases. Is this just a case of rotten apples or is this a case as a, a national disgrace? I think it's a national disgrace. And here, here's why. I think rotten apples are few and far between. I, I don't know of many prosecutors who are, you know, eager to convict the innocent. Um, and I think we could all agree that, that those few folks really don't belong in our criminal justice system. What I'm much more concerned about and interested in is why otherwise good and ethical actors, including prosecutors and judges and defense lawyers, might make decisions that could uh, aggravate the risk of a wrongful conviction. And I think it really is a combination of practical, professional, and psychological incentives. So let's just take psychology for a minute. Um, you know, we've all heard the phrase, first impressions are lasting impressions, or the phrase tunnel vision, how you get locked into a theory of something, and it takes a lot of countervailing information to get you to deviate from it. So let's think about it, you know, from the perspective of a criminal case and how a criminal case gets to trial. So prosecutors typically get involved after the police have made an arrest and the police hand over an arrest report that often is tailored to focus on elements of guilt in the report. Prosecutors look at the report and maybe before they open the file, you know, they have sort of a, a, a truly balanced view of the case. They, they, they vow to look at it with an open mind. But within seconds or minutes, they're primed to think the person's guilty. And once they've developed a theory of guilt, and maybe that theory of guilt is to some extent um, triggered or supplemented by the fact that they have to work with the police and collaborate with the police and distrusting the police or being hard on the police might not be advantageous to the prosecutor's long-term success, um, they begin to develop this theory of guilt. And so over time, um, that just hardens. Uh, cognitive psychologists talk about this as the escalation of commitment. As you get closer to the end game in whatever you're doing, instead of being more critical of what you're doing and being more objective, instead, you become more attached to it. You become more attached to um, uh, your theory of the case. So I think that's one example, the, the sort of psychological uh, factor. And that's why I think 
it's a national disgrace. We have these practical, professional, and psychological factors that we could really grapple with and address if we cared about criminal justice. The fact that we haven't tackled these factors head on sort of belies the idea that we really care about our fellow human beings who are being sent to cages all too often for things they didn't do. You also point out that BIPOC or black, indigenous and people of color communities, especially black men, are disproportionately represented in the wrongfully uh, convicted population, which is a symptom of a much larger societal illness. Take homicide cases. The exoneration data uh, suggests that innocent black defendants are seven times more likely to be convicted of murder than innocent whites. The stain of racial bias tarnishes every single aspect of the criminal justice system, including the appellate and post-conviction process. There's reason to think that judges more readily distrust claims of innocence by BIPOC defendants than by white ones, and that members of BIPOC communities lack meaningful access to the legal resources needed to overturn wrongful convictions. So victims of racism and that racism manifesting itself in a lack of resources necessary to have access to justice. Is wrongful conviction then Is it a race problem? That is, without the disproportionality when it comes to wrongful convictions of people of color, especially black men, how big of a problem is wrongful conviction? While the wrongful conviction of anyone is a national disgrace, as you call it, is this national disgrace mostly driven by racism towards people of color? That's a huge piece of this. At every phase of our criminal justice system, people of color are disadvantaged for every single reason. You mentioned some of that data about uh, uh, homicide cases. Uh, That's really just one example of lots of studies that show that people of color um, really don't get a fair shake in our system. And when you look at the data set of documented exonerations, uh, people of color, uh, especially black men, uh, are disproportionately uh, represented. So I think like all things in criminal justice, the analysis of wrongful convictions and the phenomenon of wrongful convictions cannot be divorced from race, from racial bias, from the great stain on our country that is our legacy of slavery and discrimination. But that problem of any kind of racial disparity or a class disparity or accessibility when it comes to public defenders that's all supposed to be addressed by public defenders, attorneys being provided by the state. If not through public defenders, how, uh, how, how much is there an issue when it comes to uh, accessibility to procedure of law and to be, over, to be overcome? How, is the, isn't the, that racial disparity outcome simply overcome by public defenders? Uh, In theory or in the abstract, I think public defenders could do a very good job of minimizing racial disparities if they had the resources to do so, to bring in expert witnesses at trial, for instance, to talk about uh, the problems of racism, not just systemic racism, but even a phenomenon known as cross-racial misidentification, where um, people of color are are frequently misidentified by uh, white eyewitnesses, not necessarily out of bad faith but out of mistakes, right? We live in a segregated society. We are not very good at identifying members of different uh, races. Uh, There's a concept known as ethnocentric homogeneity, that people within different racial or ethnic groups look to different distinguishing characteristics within their groups to differentiate people, and that a lot of those characteristics don't translate well 
in the interracial context. Like, so there are a lot of these phenomena out there that scholars have studied that can help us understand racial disparities that if defense lawyers and public defenders were given greater resources to investigators, to expert witnesses, if they had more money so that their caseload wasn't so burdensome, then I think you're right, Chuck, we could go a, a long way to, to minimizing the disparity. But for us to actually eradicate the disparity would involve, I think, a wholesale change in our culture, right? I think the fact that we have racial disparities and discrimination in our criminal justice system, is just a mirror into the discrimination and disparities in our society. You write, altering the procedural landscape of facing innocent prisoners poses a challenge. The most direct way to foment change is to spur legislatures to amend the procedures that govern in this area, and the lack of political will is a real impediment. Although criminal justice reform is all the rage. The public's appetite has its limits. One of those limits is the fear of guilty defendants convicted of violent offenses exploiting procedural loopholes to get out of prison, convincing people about the wisdom of, for example, streamlining federal habeas corpus procedures is a tall order, even if you can get voters and legislators to focus on the topic. Is the justice system then built more on the fear of setting a guilty person free than making certain that those who are in jail are guilty of their crimes? Is it fearing the guilty will go free more than the innocent being wrongly jailed? Is that the justice system's focus? I think that is the justice system's focus, despite all the assertions to the contrary. A, a lot of people like to tout the old British uh, or English axiom that it's far better to let, you know, 100 guilty go free or 10 guilty go free than to let a single innocent person languish behind bars. But I think everything about our procedural re regime reflects the opposite, that we are committed through our plea bargaining system and through the shortcuts that we take at trial, on appeal, and through the post-conviction process, that we are committed to the idea uh, that you're you're not presumed innocent, you're presumed guilty. And once that presumption is validated through a trial verdict or an appellate decision, we don't want to expend the money to counter it. So I think that's right, even though people will claim the opposite. I think our system is designed to find people guilty and to affirm that decision. So you also point out that legislative amendments to the litigation process would remain subject to judicial interpretation, leaving open the possibility that courts would simply interpret the new rules to function in a manner akin to the old ones. Likewise, changes to the executive branch remedies of parole and clemency would only be as good as the officials in charge of implementation. Is, is it possible or even advisable to take that kind of human element out of the judicial equation? I think we still need that human element. Uh, we just have to have humans that have greater empathy and greater awareness of this phenomenon so they can maybe make better decisions. Um, we don't want to completely remove discretion and the human element from this uh, because then it would be too mechanical, right? And um, we know how that might work, that certain vulnerable and marginalized populations would be even more disadvantaged. So I think the answer, and I, I, I end this, it's not an answer, but it's a partial solution, is to encourage empathy, to encourage understanding, to tell the stories of the innocent so in, in a relatable and accessible way, um, that, that these are people that can be and are your neighbors, your friends, your classmates. They're not the other. 
They are you, they are me, they are our sisters, our brothers, our mothers, our fathers. And once we realize that these are real people with names, they are Audrey, Stephen, David, Fernando, Michael, once we realize that, I think we can take a very important first step toward ameliorating the problem. So why do you think a guilty conviction is so leads to so much dehumanization? Well, I think part of it is that the system's overwhelmed and we can't necessarily humanize everyone who goes through it. A second reason is probably that once you have found someone guilty and you have condemned, condemned them to uh, imprisonment, I think there's a natural psychological um, feeling uh, uh, toward othering that person or dehumanizing them to sort of take away the sting of the role that you've played in condemning them to a life or a period of time behind bars. So I think there are a lot of sort of psychological bases uh, uh, for it. I also think there's something that um, allows people who are outside prison to feel better about themselves, knowing that other people are behind bars. It gives us a false sense of safety, maybe a false sense of superiority. So I think there are a lot of reasons that could lead to uh, the dehumanization of people who've been convicted. And I think in many ways, that's the biggest barrier here. Let's remove the othering, let's remove the dehumanization and understand that the people behind bars are you and me. Many of them may have committed the crimes that brought them to their current residence. Some did not. Let's critically examine those cases. Let's take a painstaking approach to evaluating whether they are rightfully there or wrongfully. One last question for you, Daniel. We've been speaking with law and criminal justice scholar Daniel S. Medwood, author of Bard, Why the Innocent Can't Get Out of Prison. You can follow Daniel on Twitter at Daniel Medwood. Check out his earlier work, Prosecution Complex, America's Race to Convict and Its Impact on the Innocent. One last question for you, Daniel, and we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience <laughs> may hate our, you may, might hate your response. You write, the groups that litigate post-conviction innocence claims in the United States lack resources to accept every case that demands justice and instead engage in triage by pursuing only the strongest. So, Daniel, is there simply just too much crime in the United States, too much crime being committed to fairly apply justice? Is the problem crime and not justice? I don't think so. I think the problem is justice. And I think the problem is there's not enough money being directed to innocence projects and defense lawyers to grapple with the problem of mass incarceration. And once people are behind bars and the, the, you know they're locked in their cells and the key is essentially thrown away, it's very difficult for outsiders to determine whether or not they belong there. They are rightfully there. So I think the issue is not crime. It's how we throw away the key and put people behind bars and make it very difficult to understand whether they should be there or not. Daniel, thank you so much for being on our show today. Again, Daniel Medwood is the author of Bard, Why the Innocent Can't Get Out of Prison. You can follow Daniel on Twitter at Daniel Medwood. That's M-E-D-W-E-D. Thank you so much for being on our show. This has been a fascinating conversation. Well, thanks, Chuck. I had a great time. And I should mention that I'll be in Chicago on October 22nd uh, for the Chicago Humanities Festival. So I'd love to see some of your listeners if they're they're interested. Okay, October 27th, we'll plug it online. Uh, in 22nd, our, sorry. 22nd, okay. 
All right. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it, Daniel. October 22nd. All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Chuck. Take care. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. And if the conversation with Daniel and how the U.S. justice system prioritizes efficiency over accuracy, leading to countless innocent people being wrongly convicted and going to prison, even death row, if that was in some way enlightening or made you realize that, yes, this really is hell, please show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. Last week on Patreon, it was This Week in Hell, our increasingly regular review of what I got out of last week's conversations with our guests. And last week we spoke with historian, writer, and editor Steve Frazier about his Tom Dispatch article, the Trump Supreme Court is nothing new, a history of the tyranny of the Supremes. We also spoke with sociologist and law scholar Dorothy Roberts. She spoke with us about her book, Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abortion Can Build a Safer World. And we talked to James Wilt, author of Drinking Up the Revolution, How to Smash Big Alcohol and Reclaim Working Class Joy. What I learned from Steve, Dorothy, and James was the United States is structurally undemocratic in order to protect an American brand of apartheid. That black families are broken up by the state much in the same way indigenous families were destroyed through so-called Indian border schools or boarding schools. And a reminder that capitalism is child abuse and that alcohol is a major public health concern dominated by an exploitative industry with deep roots in colonialism. And luckily, there are psychoactive alternatives to alcohol which are becoming increasingly accessible. Was it hypocritical of us to have an anti-booze guest on right before we had an anniversary party at a bar? Probably. But capitalism forces all of us to be hypocrites. If we want to survive within this unfair and unequal system, we have to lower our moral standards and ethics. At least that was what this week in hell was for me. And for the second week in a row on Patreon, we shared a conversation with the late, great writer and journalist, Barbara Ehrenreich, who recently passed away. The conversation we shared this time was from 2009. Barbara had just posted an article titled, Are Women Getting Sadder or Are We All Just Getting a Lot More Gullible? Barbara wrote at the time, it's an old story. If you want to sell something, first find the terrible affliction that it cures. In the 1980s, as silicone implants were taking, co- taking off, the doctors uh, discovered micromastia, the disease of small-breastedness. More recently, as Big Pharma searches furiously for a female Viagra, remember this is back in 2009, an amazingly high 43% of women have been found to suffer from female sexual dysfunction, or FSD. Now, it's unhappiness, and the range of potential cures is dazzling. Seagram's Gin, Godiva Chocolate, and Harlequin Romances take note. Barbara was no fan of the healthcare industry, and you will hear why if you subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. And if you do subscribe, you not only get last week's Patreon podcast, but all of our earlier Patreon podcasts, numbering over 200 so far, each with a new monologue by me and an interview from our archives that's not available anywhere else online. You also get a special secret code word that gets you a discount on all the This Is Hell merchandise. To get all of that, all you have to do is subscribe to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Sebastian, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. 
Uh, this week's question from hell is, what important personal item did you lose at the This Is Hell annual listener appreciation party this weekend? What important personal item did you lose at the This Is Hell annual listener appreciation party this weekend? Uh, SLS replies, my virginity. Uh, I knew somebody was going to say that. I mean, should I sh- should should we disinfect the the studio? <laughs> yeah. Um, Voychajar says my sobriety. Okay, all right. Uh, our very own Pete V says my mind. <laughs> okay, so we're on, we're all on the I, right track here. I mean, we 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 witnessed uh, some of that. <laughs> um, Warren L replies my marbles. <laughs> That's why so many people were tripping. Um, <laughs> I've noticed that too. Uh, Chris C replies, "My dignity." <laughs> I I um I, I like spot a trend here. I like marbles and dignity so far. Marbles just because it's such a scientific term for yes. your mental health. Yes. Adam A replies, "The opportunity uh, the opportunity to attend the This Is Hell annual listener appreciation party because I didn't go. What? Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm on a no beer diet until the end of the month." The oh. gut, it is showing. I am working on it, and I just can't put myself in a position to test my own willpower because I don't have any. Uh, well, we're like, you know, only about 10, 11 days to the end of the month, so uh, Adam, you can join us for uh, this hell office hours on Wednesday night. Yeah. There you go. Uh, yeah, and that's it so far because I just posted this before the show. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question, Mel, wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. Go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the all of our stuff. When any You can choose whichever piece of merchandise you want if you are this week's winner, and we will send it in the mail to you post-haste. But we have to have your answers to this uh, week. This week's question from Hell uh, by the end of this week when we are announcing this w- week's winner, as we do most weeks. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, we'll have the rest of your answer or more of your answers to the question from hell later this week. And now it's time for another mind-blowing edition of producer and historians, uh, historian Sebastian Voper's look into the historical context of today's most precious, pressing issues, the past inside the present. The past inside the present. Today, I want to talk about immigrants. You know, people like me who leave their country to come here and take hardworking Americans' jobs and live on taxpayer money welfare. Or something like that. So, supposedly, these United States here um, is a nation of immigrants. And well, that is true in so far as that this here country is an evolved settler colonial society that murdered most of the survivors of the world's worst plague. It's true, look it up, when the Spaniards sneezed on the indigenous Americans a couple of times that started to die off of proportions so insanely massive it actually lowered global temperatures. But that's another story for another time. Anyway... Immigrants. So, nobody who is living in the United States today and who isn't a full-blooded tribal member is pretty much an immigrant, or at least immigrant-adjacent. Many people don't really want to see it that way, though, but, well, many people just tend to be wrong. And yet, for a nation that is made up of people who don't really have their ancestral lands here, this country is actually surprisingly awful to those who want to join in. People will tell you 
the United States is a country of contradictions. And, well, they they are right in that regard. Um, because this is indeed one of those American contradictions, one of these American exceptionalisms. A nation that proudly unites people from all over the world, but only if they've been here for a few generations. If they're new, well, you got something coming, buster. Funny enough, this is a part of history that does rhyme so well it, it would put any poet or battle rapper to shame. Hating on new arriving immigrants is a tradition, uh, an American tradition, as old as apple pie. Well, probably actually older than apple pie, given that apples weren't really indigenous to this hemisphere. But again, I'm losing track. And if we're going by the whole who arrived here first narrative, then, well, most, Ameri most American Americans would actually be Spanish-speaking, because, well, before the pasties, sullen, dreary-eyed killjoys and the Mayflower made landfall, here, the Spaniards had long been colonizing southern parts of what would later become the United States. But the two early Anglo-American colonies are what gave birth to America's old stock, those who were either descendants of the Puritans or of the Virginia colonies. Everyone who arrived later was basically not really American in the eyes of some Anglo-Saxonists, especially if those latecomers were neither Anglo nor Saxon. The earliest and still largest non-English-speaking immigrant group of that time were the Germans. And for sure, the Anglo-Saxons were quite suspicious of them. The Germans didn't speak English, so they could make fun of those sourpusses without them knowing it. They also had customs that were not English, which the English perceived as a big mistake. Even Benjamin Franklin, that old whore-hopper, while adm admiring the Germans' frugality and industry, feared Anglo-Saxon replacement. The Germans of Pennsylvania, in Franklin's mind, were just too frugal and too industrious. They refused to Anglicize, and their numbers began to influence American politics um, when they started... Well, when the Germans started to use their local numerical advantages to actually represent themselves... And Franklin was afraid that if things continued as they did in the 1750s, Pennsylvania, uh, in, in, in 1750s Pennsylvania, that the colonies would be Germanized rather than the German immigrants taking up English and stop being Germans. But things didn't really play out that way. The Germans maintained a fairly cohesive and segregated existence in Pennsylvania, sure, but in other places they did assimilate and become, well, German-American or then just white Americans. The biggest issue with the Germans arose at the time that American evangelicals got it in their heads that alcohol was actually bad, which broadly coincided with the big immigration wave in the 19th century. So with the first big immigration waves of the 19th century. And the Germans, well, they do like their alcohol. So they were bad. Um... And of course, as usual, I am grossly oversimplifying. The United States in the middle of the 19th century were, by most Anglo-Americans, seen as a decidedly Anglo-Saxon project, with some hangers-on that were begrudgingly welcome at best. Anglo-Saxon supremacy ruled in the mid-19th century, and it, was, it wasn't quite white supremacy yet, but it was on its way there for sure. Um, and it was the Anglo-Saxons, the whitest of the whites, who were destined, in the view of, well, Anglo-Saxons, to manifest across the continent, not just 
this, uh, and and it was the Anglo-Saxons who were destined to do that, not the just plain old Saxons. And those Saxons, as in the Germans, couldn't really be trusted. They spoke a strange, strange language. They organized among themselves, and they drank a lot of beer. Now, this beer had actually less alcohol than the English-style ales, and a lot less alcohol than gin and whiskey, the drinks of choice for the Anglo-Saxons, really didn't occur to them. So the Germans could drink a lot without really being quite as drunk as Anglo-Saxons who drank the same amounts of, you know, like the same volume of liquids, but the volume of liquids that the Anglo-Saxons drank had more alcohol than the volume of liquids that the Germans drank, and so, yeah, misunderstandings arose. Um, and also, many of those Germans were Catholics, which made them worse than, well, Hitler hadn't been around at the time, so probably worse than Napoleon Bonaparte. And then there were also the Irish. At least only some Germans were Catholics, papists, heretics. But the Irish, they all were, and they were all drinkers, at least according to the Anglo-Saxons. And there were just so many of them after the potato famine struck back on their Green Isle in the 1840s. Many contemporary Anglo-Saxon evangelicals saw this as a conspiracy by Satan to flood God's chosen country with godless papists, with people whose allegiance could never be to the United States, but would always be to Rome, the dregs of humanity. And it's quite funny if you look at anti-immigrant pamphlets from the 1850s and 60s, and you just change Irish or German to Mexican. You can really just hear Trump talk. Um, as I said, like this part of history rhymes um, <laughs> really too well a little sometimes. Uh, but immigration in the 19th century was not regulated. Uh, essentially, anyone who could afford passage on an ocean-going ship could make it. Controls for proper character and lack of diseases were only really introduced later in the 19th century. What really fueled the mass immigration movement off that time was technology. You know, first it was the railroad, and then the steamship. The railroad spread across Europe during, the, during that time and began to connect inland parts of the continent with harbor towns. And that made leaving for overseas much easier than it had been in the before times. Steamships effectively shrank the Atlantic Ocean down to a lake. And together, these advancements enabled masses of Europeans to leave for the Western Hemisphere. Not all of those people went to the U.S. Many also went to various places in South America, but those aren't the people I'm talking about today. And as these immigrants kept coming, anti-immigrant sentiment kept, well, just going along. Were Italians really, you know, people? Were Greeks even human? Europe was not sending its best. Many racist anti-immigrant cartoons of the late 1800s depict Europe unloading its worst onto the poor, pure United States. Seems familiar. But what about the whole a nation of immigrants thing, and the Anglo-Saxons themselves being immigrants, um, or rather de descendants from immigrants? Well, you will be surprised to know that hypocrisy was already a thing for bigots in the late 1800s. Yes, the old stock Anglo-Saxons were descendants of immigrants, but, you know, those were different immigrants. When the Anglo-Saxon ancestors sailed across the ocean blue, immigration was a difficult, hard endeavor. Only the best of the best could really make it. Immigration was a process of natural selection. Now, in 1890-something, immigration was just too damn easy with all those newfangled steamships and railroads. Now everyone can just make it. 
not just the best and toughest, but, you know, the dregs of humanity will just survive. Nobody just dies dies on the month-long month journey. Um, so it's just, immigration has just become too easy. But then immigration was still relatively unregulated at that time, and most people, unless they were severely sick or obviously prostitutes or something like that, um, or otherwise of questionable moral character, would be allowed in. Unless they were Chinese, of course, or otherwise Asiatic. Those fell under the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, because those frisky Chinamen were making too many googly eyes at the lily-white women of California or, or something. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating how, um, you know, the, they, they fear by white people that any kind of immigrant will just steal their, basically their daughters, usually. That's kind of a thing that's always uh, an, an issue in, in those in those conversations. And then ch things changed dramatically in 1924. The Johnson-Reed Immigration Act reconfigured racial categories and introduced a quota system to immigration. It barred anyone not either from Europe or Africa to immigrate to the United States effectively. National origins were essentially invented through this act. European countries received much larger quotas than any non-European countries. And the act codified values and judgments about certain ethnicities into law and oriented the desired markup of the nation according to Whitey along there. Um along these lines. In the Southwest, this presented a difficult, uh, different set of challenges because Mexicans were considered white by law, but American agriculture needed Mexican workers, so in order to stem mass immigration from Mexico, the Southwestern states employed administrative means to control immigration, and this is where likely to become a charge of the state became a thing as a limitation for immigration, and it was used massively to prevent, well, mass immigration. Um, and it was also often bound to convoluted literacy, literacy tests, kind of um, similar to the literacy tests used to keep black people from voting in the American South. And if you, like, just look this up, like, like voting liter literacy tests, I'm pretty sure, like, even you as, like, a... a you know, uh, native language, American, what's the word I'm looking for here? Not native language, uh, uh, native speaker. Yeah. Yeah. English native speaker, you will have difficulty doing any of those because they're designed to be um, impassable. Uh, but what the Johnson-Reed Immigration Act also, for the first time, produced was a whole new category of people because before 1924, Nobody could be in the country illegally because that sort of offense just did not exist. And after 1924, illegal immigration was suddenly a growing threat to the integrity of the nation. And to counter that, the Texas Rangers and the Border Patrol came in. And that is something I will talk about next time. Thank you, Sebastian. And Sebastian, it is another edition of The Past Inside the Present. Thanks to everybody who joined us at This Is Hell's anniversary and listener appreciation party this past weekend. And write it down, the next anniversary party celebrating 27 years on air will be happening. If all goes well, and who knows, in this time of pandemics, global heating, rising fascism, and endless war... Our next This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party featuring the opening 
of the This Is Art Art Show will be happening Saturday, July 22nd, 2023. Sebastian, who is our guest that is scheduled to be on tomorrow's show? July 22nd, 2023. We won't be in, in Chicago. You won't be? <laughs> yeah. We, we already have a family a reunion booked and what about the next week on july 29th oh i'm not gonna be here <laughs> so that's an issue all right well anyway. maybe we'll set it up for a different date yeah. Yeah, we got a whole year to work it out yeah yeah all right anyway uh so tomorrow we have matthew t huber author of climate change as class war building socialism on a warming planet matthew is professor of geography in the maxwell school of citizenship and public affairs at syracuse university and thanks to matthew for providing a, an autographed copy of his book that we'll be discussing tomorrow as one of the raffle prizes at this past weekend's this is hell uh listener appreciation party so thanks again to matthew uh, also coming up this week we're going to have tomorrow this week in rotten history with from ronaldo magaldi and then on wednesday we'll be speaking with jeff dorchin as jeff dorchin delivers yet another moment of truth i am your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show live streaming podcast host if you're wondering who's going to be on wednesday's show get off my back okay listen i'm still working on booking the final guests for this week's show thanks to sebastian voper for producing truly appreciate it sebastian another great job with the past inside the present putting people before profits which turns out to be a horrible business model this is hell my demon is on my butt. Ah. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.